I think dogs is too obvious an answer. I'm going to go for something esoteric, like a crocodile. Huh. Maybe a shark. Huh. A baby shark? I'm cutting that. <laughs> no, that's going in the intro. That has to be the intro. <laughs> podcast not yet a doctor my name is sienna and i am not yet a doctor although i am studying neuroscience and well on my way to becoming one my name is beth i'm not yet a doctor either but i'm studying particle physics i'm in my first year of a phd so i've got a way to go and my name is alistair and i'm studying analytical chemistry and i am also not yet a doctor so today we're going to talk about how we detect our environment So I wanted to start off just by asking you guys that exact question. So how do we detect and interact with our environment? What does that make you think of? Alice, do you go? Oh, okay. Um, Ask the analytical chemist about (laughs) detection limits and stuff. Okay, sure. Um, So we have six senses. Six? Um, Yeah. I was always told five. (laughs) Well... This is this is the big conspiracy that, that Big Sense doesn't want you to know. Because <laughs> um, we have... Okay, okay, maybe I'm wrong. But sight, smell, taste, touch, hearing. I was going to say audiology. Hearing. <laughs> and, like, isn't emotion a sense? Or there's, like, a sixth one that people say. Like, you have perception of personal space and stuff, which I think... Oh, yeah. So I guess that. this is kind of, like... In the sense that I think senses described for people don't really represent exactly what's going on in our biology. So I would consider that it's in some ways, I mean, it's based on the same concepts, mechanisms that touch is. So this is related to the same types of neurons. Mm. They're just like proprioceptive neurons tell you where your body is in space and um, what's going on in your body. And they detect all sorts of things, but they're not really... Yeah, most people don't think of it as a another sense, but it, it's a good actually good point to bring up. We do have kind of a sense of where we are in space and what our body is doing, and we can sense heat and cold and that sort of thing. Can so. I interrupt with a quick linguistic fact? Yes. In Italian, like they use the same verb. They use it in different ways, but they use the same verb for hearing, smelling, and touching and feeling are all the same verb, and it's really confusing. So how do you know if you're saying, I smell the dog, as opposed to, I hear the dog, or <laughs> I touch the dog? It's really confusing. Like, I remember when this kid was like, feel this flower, and I was like, oh, well, that must mean smell this flower, except, like, no, she meant, like, literally feel it with your fingers, because it was like, <laughs> it had a weird texture. Anyway, linguistics aside. That sounds <laughs> difficult. Yeah. Yeah. Huh. Okay, my second question is, do you have a favorite sense? We're just going to pick from the five. Isn't that like picking your favorite child? I guess if you have five children, maybe. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, I'll go first, I guess, while Beth thinks. Yeah, go. Looks pensively at the window. Um, (laughs) I would say that my favorite sense is my sense of smell. Really? Yes, because I would say taste. I love tasting foods and tasting things but there's like some fact and maybe you'll get to this but like isn't like 80 percent of taste actually just smell um i don't know percent wise but 
taste and smell are completely intertwined. You're right. Okay. I was going to say something really similar. That um, probably tasting would be the most important. But, and so, like, okay. So if, if so much of tasting is actually smelling, then it would be smelling that would be my favorite. That's my answer. Cool. Interesting answers from both of you. I wasn't expecting smelling to be so important to both of you. I definitely thought the favorite would be sight or hearing or touch even. Like if you think about yeah. hugging people and feeling other people, you know, usually that one comes up. But interesting, interesting answers, both of you. So I just kind of wanted to start with this because it's interesting to think about in general how we interact with our environment. And it is through these five senses. So touch, taste olfaction, hearing, and sight. And this is all mediated through these special cells that we're going to talk about called sensory neurons, and they're found all throughout our body and they do different jobs. Um, And sensory neurons essentially just can detect different things in our environment and send that information to our brain. So for the example of our eyes, sensory neurons are detecting photons, whereas in our ears, they detect sound waves And then in our mouth and in our nose, they're actually detecting organic molecules, typically. And so what's really cool about this is if you think about it, the olfactory system and to an extent taste as well, although we won't be talking about that in this podcast, are these are the only systems that are specialized to detect stimuli that evolve fast and evolve more over time. Because if you think about it, there's no evolution happening with photons or light waves like physics doesn't change very fast if at all that you would know more but yeah the physics of light isn't changing the physics of sound waves isn't really changing so your ears and eyes are detecting one thing and they just have to keep detecting that but your taste system and your olfactory system have to detect organic molecules and organic molecules are produced by living things and living things are constantly evolving and changing the molecules that they produce so It's um, a really incredibly specialized and also dynamic sensory system because it can detect sort of almost an unlimited number of different molecules. And then it's also, if you think about it, considered to be one of the oldest sensory systems because chemical sensing. So if we're talking about the fact that taste and um, smell more so detects organic chemicals, organic molecules. And chemical sensing is kind of the basis of life itself. Like bacteria can sense chemicals and follow them to a food source. Um, There's pretty much like any living organism you can think of would be able to detect chemicals in its environment and either move towards them or move away from them. So in this sense, if you consider that like the most rudimentary sense of smell that you could possibly have, although it's not exactly the same and sense of smell has evolved a long way since then. But if you consider that the most rudimentary level, then the sense of smell is kind of the one that dictates behavior of all life forms. That's crazy. Whereas like light sensing is not that important to most creatures. Think about creatures under the sea at the bottom of the ocean, even like highly um, evolved creatures, they don't bother sensing light because there is none. And then bacteria mostly don't bother sensing light either because it doesn't really matter to them. No, I like you, you touched on this, but I would have thought that light sensing or like vibrational sensing, kind of like hearing, but just sensing vibrational waves would have evolved before the sense of chemical perception. But you bring up a good point that like chemical sensing is kind of how 
cells work. Like that's just how, like that's the basis of how cells work. So yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. I didn't, I didn't really think like I, I wouldn't have thought of smell on those simplistic terms of like it's just chemical sensing. Mm. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty amazing that way. Pretty cool. Yeah, it's also like everyone makes a big deal about the evolution of the eye, and that's very, it's a sort of famous thing about how good evolution is and like how far it's come is that we have these amazing light receptors. So, like, there's so much focus given to that that, like, you kind of assume that's most important, but obviously not, or at least not initially, like at the beginning of the evolution of life. That's pretty cool. That's a cool fact. Yeah, pretty cool fact. Although the evolution of the eye is pretty darn cool and the fact that we can detect light so well, I would be more than happy to talk about that one day since I do study the visual system. But today we're going to talk about olfaction, which is also very cool, probably also has a really cool evolutionary history, but I didn't really look into it all that much. We're more just going to talk about how it works, because if you think about it, it does this hugely complex job. And like I said, it has to detect kind of constantly changing organic molecules and also organic molecules that might look really similar but have very different roles to play so it has to be able to discriminate between these really well so we're going to talk about how that does it, how it does that so quick question are we confining our analysis of the olfactory system to just humans or will we be talking about olfaction in other animals because i remember hearing about these dogs that can sniff out cancer and i was wondering if it's cool stuff yeah um we can talk about that for sure. I was actually just about to ask you guys what animal you think has the best sense of smell in the animal kingdom. Ooh. So, okay. do you have any guesses for this? Um, I'm gonna think. I'm gonna think for a minute because <laughs> although I said dogs, I wanna, I wanna, I wanna be right. I think dogs is too obvious an answer. I'm gonna go for something esoteric like a crocodile. Huh? Maybe a shark. Huh? I'm gonna say. I'm going to stick with it. I'm going to say canine, a dog, has the best sense of smell. Okay. So I got to say, both of you picked really good answers. And so the issue with this is we obviously have not studied every animal's nose. So we don't know for sure what animal has the best sense of smell. But one thing that, like, if you just Google this, the answer you're going to actually come up with is bears. Bears. Because bears can follow a rotting carcass for like 40 miles. They can track the scent. Polar bears can smell seals under four feet of ice. They have some pretty crazy tracking capabilities with their olfactory system. And it's probably due to the fact that bears have a huge, huge, huge kind of working habitat and they're loners. So if they do want to mate, they need to be able to find another bear, which could be very, very, very far away. Or even food often is very far away for them. But Now, the issue with this answer is I couldn't actually find anyone who had studied a bear's nose. This is just like a fact that is repeated over and over again on the internet, and I can't find the first source of it. Mm. But it's on like pretty important websites like the Yosemite National Park website. And I mean, there is good evidence for bears being that good of sniffers because they can track these smells very far. Like that is known. But we don't know exactly very much about a bear's nose, how it works, that sort of thing, or what would be different about it, making it that good of a smeller. So that's the answer you'll get from the internet. But obviously, dogs have a really good nose. So you're right. And they're probably the ones with the best studied nose, aside from aside from mice, rats, and our own sense of smell. So dogs, as like a non-model organism, have the best studied sense of smell. 
And sharks also, you're right, Beth. Sharks, I think, came up when I was looking at like lists of best smelling animals on the internet. Sharks came up as well because, like you said, they can smell it like they can smell a drop of blood dissolved in the ocean from many miles away. So, to do this, they need a pretty darn good nose. And I have one final animal that neither of you mentioned, but has another really good sense of smell. And this is kind of interesting because in the fish kingdom, fish don't typically necessarily have really good senses of smell, depends on the type of fish. A lot of fish use their eyesight more so than their sense of smell. But salmon have an incredibly good sense of smell. I, okay, you said fish and I was like, is she going to say salmon? Like I, <laughs> I was just thinking salmon for some reason. You West Canadians. And... <laughs> Do you have any idea why you might have been thinking salmon? Because it's delicious? <laughs> because you were talking about bears? Yeah, <gasps> oh. probably. No, salmon, if you think about their life cycle, they go from rivers, they spawn in a river, yeah. and then they swim all the way out to the ocean. But when they go to spawn, they return to the original river that they were born in. Ah. Always. Salmon always do this. And that's they do this by relying on their sense of smell. So they follow the smell of their birth river back to go really? spawn there, which is crazy. Yeah. That's amazing. Because I knew, like, That's so cool. I knew that salmon were born in rivers and then went back to spawn in the same location, which is crazy. But I never thought about how that happened. I guess I thought it was kind of like birds with their, like, magnetic perception kind of thing. But, like, it's their sense of smell. Yeah, they smell their way back, wow. which is wild. Yeah. I guess it's like how, you know how everyone's home has a smell and like your friends and like people, it's not a bad smell. It's just everyone has a smell. Yeah. yeah. Like, I guess it's kind of like that. Like, yeah, the equivalent for salmon maybe. <laughs> yeah. When you've been away for a long time and you come home and you're like, oh, this is what my house smells like. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, we have all of these examples of really good smellers in the animal kingdom, but we're going to talk about why they are better than sniffers than us and how... How sniffing works. How can we get a good sense of smell? Why do humans not have that good of a sense of smell? What's going on? Let's talk about it. So as I mentioned before, if we're going to detect our environment, we need to do this using cells. And so there's this very specialized cell type called a sensory neuron that can detect cues in our environment. And since you guys are a chemist and a physicist, I was just going to go through the basic anatomy of a neuron so that we can kind of keep it on a pretty basic level, but make sure that you guys understand what's happening. So a neuron has kind of three basic components to it. It has dendrites, a cell body, and an axon. And so I'm going to try and use like a computer science circuit-like analogy here. <laughs> <laughs> no, honestly, this will be really useful because I've just started studying artificial intelligence and artificial neural networks and all of this kind of thing for the first time. And my lecturer has put on the slides like, diagrams of cells and of neurons and stuff and I don't know what's going on so Sienna can you help me? Ah, I can absolutely help you here. So essentially a neuron is a very basic processing unit and so it has the dendrites like I mentioned before and these dendrites come from the Greek word for tree which is dendro. It's because they look like branches and this is where you get inputs coming into the cell. So these dendrites can receive inputs and these can be electrical inputs but they can also be environmental inputs. And this just tells the cell that there's a stimulus. So dendrites is where the stimulus enters. Then you have the cell body, usually in the center of the neuron, and the cell body kind of interprets the input 
and decides whether or not to send the message forward. So essentially, it determines whether the input is going to be a 0 or a 1. But if there's enough input, then the cell body decides that this is a 1, and the message needs to be sent forward. And so then it uses the axon to do this. So the axon is like a very, very long arm of the neuron. It comes off of the cell body. And then it just conducts the electrical signal all the way to the end of the axon. And at the end of the axon, it connects up to the dendrites of another neuron. So this is how we get inputs and outputs through neurons. And so in the olfactory system, there's a very specialized type of neuron called an olfactory neuron. And so this is a neuron that is built to sense odors. And they are located in our nose, and they send these little projections, which you can picture like tiny cellular hairs coming off their one end where their dendrite is. And they send these out, these little hairs, into the mucus lining of our nasal cavity. And they wave them around in this mucus, and they try and find odorants, essentially. So that's how we get inputs. It sounds kind of ticklish. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, if you look at electron microscope images of it, it looks ticklish. It's like a <laughs> thick mat. If you can picture like a shag rug, that's what your nasal epithelium looks like Gross. on a very, very, very small level. Yeah. So there's a little rug coating the inside of our nasal cavity called our nasal epithelium. It has all of these different types of cells in it, including the olfactory neurons. They wave their little hairs around and try and find odorants. And so these hairs catch the molecules on them. Yeah, so I mean, there's kind of the two aspects that go into catching the molecules is both the hairs, but also the mucus. Mm, right. So the odorants are just molecules floating around in the air, right? And we can breathe them in, and they go into and enter our nasal cavity. And this is what they end up dissolving in the mucus, and then kind of can be detected by these little hairs flapping about. Right. Can I ask a question? Please. Because, like, we never understood this kind of thing about biology which is like how did they go about detecting them like what is the process like is there some chemical reaction or is there like i just really don't understand how things can live like it's it's really confusing to me i totally understand and that is like probably the craziest part of biology but kind of in general really easy to explain so do you know what a protein is uh a long chain of amino acids right for sure do you have any other i can you name some proteins do you know of any proteins uh keratin yeah keratin's a protein that's in your hair right yeah and i think in your nails as well makes sense yeah okay yeah and that's it i'm finished fair so collagen is another (laughs) protein you might have heard of Oh, yeah, yeah, I've heard of it. Collagen. In your skin, is it? Yeah. And so these are like structural proteins. So if you think about it, what their job is, is to build structures in our body. So collagen kind of builds, it helps create like the extracellular space. And it is kind of like this really long stranded protein that just sits around outside of our cells and kind of ties up molecules, water molecules, and keeps you hydrated. Keratin, obviously, is a structural protein that's quite hard and it builds our nails and hair. But there's other proteins as well. So if you think about digestion, you have to break down all of these molecules that you're eating. For instance, carbohydrates are very long chains of sugars. And for our body to be able to use these, we need to break them out down into single sugars. And so we have other proteins to do this. And those are called enzymes. And these enzymes just cut carbohydrates, cleave them down into smaller and smaller pieces. So proteins do a lot of different jobs. And this is based on 
their chemical properties, what they can bind, et cetera. But essentially, they, like proteins can interact with other molecules. And so in terms of sensing our environment, this is always pretty much achieved by proteins called receptors. And these are found on the cell membrane surface. And so what they have is sort of a binding domain that sits outside of the cell and can interact with molecules or a specific molecule. And when it interacts with this molecule, it causes sort of a conformational change in the receptor that will catalyze a reaction inside the cell. So it has one end that sticks out and captures a molecule, another end inside the cell that kind of causes a downstream cascade of signals. And it just does this by usually changing the conformation slightly because when a molecule binds it, this alters its structural properties. I just thought of an interesting visual that might like explain this as well. It's like if you had, you know, those Rube Goldberg machines that have like the ball that rolls that hits the dominoes and stuff. Like, um, like the game Mousetrap. Yes, it's like the game Mousetrap. So correct me if I'm wrong, Sienna, but it'd be like having one of those Rube Goldberg machines set up inside your house so that when you put your key in at the door and turn the key, it knocks over a thing that causes a cascade to like, I don't know, open a window or open the back door of your house. That is like a perfect example. Yes. Explanation. Yeah, I love that. If there was one of those to make tea, that would be great. Yeah. There you go. You could have it make tea. Exactly. This is exactly what is this is a great analogy for a cell. So. So then. Okay. My question, not to take us down like a whole side tangent, but maybe and maybe we'll talk about this later. You can you can tell me if we will. But my question using my analogy is how do we not have to have 10,000 different locks for 10,000 different keys? Because there are so many molecules in the world. How can we sense all of these molecules while still being specific to certain responses? Oh, this is such, such a great question. So we are going to go a bit more into depth in there, but I wanted to first talk about the fact, so like I said, these olfactory neurons are located inside our nasal cavity in, a, in the lining of our nasal cavity, which is called the olfactory epithelium. And this is because it's made up of cells called epithelial cells, which are just like a sort of fancy cell that creates most of the linings inside of our body and contributes to the creation of mucous membranes. We have epithelial cells everywhere. If you think about the lining that lines our throat, that's all epithelial cells. These are what like get infected with rhinovirus and get when you get the common cold and stuff like that. So epithelial cells everywhere, nasal epithelium, no different. And it just has also sitting inside this epithelium has these neurons sitting there. And so the size of the olfactory epithelium is about 10 centimeters squared in adult humans. And it contains almost or around 12 million olfactory neurons. Wow. So you can imagine. 10 centimeters squared. Yeah. That's big. This is what I got from my textbook. It's quite big. Yeah. It's like the size of your head. Yeah. I mean, it depends on obviously the size of the person as well. Yeah. But according to my textbook, it's 10 centimeters squared. I read elsewhere, five centimeters squared. Okay. Probably for the range. But 12 million olfactory neurons hanging out in there. And rats have a slightly, so a lot of biology things are studied in rats. So if you look at rats, they have a slightly larger epithelium and also 15 million neurons sitting around in there. So you can imagine with 15 million neurons, you can detect a lot of stimuli. So can you guess about dogs? Well, what what amazes me is that rats are a lot smaller than we are, but have so many more receptors 
Yeah. So how do you think they achieve that? Because uh, they also have a larger epithelium in general. Ooh, greater, greater undulations of the epithelium. <laughs> exactly. So the epithelium isn't flat. Ah, yeah. that's why. It's cur- It's like... I'm making, yeah. a, I'm making a wave motion with my hand. The epithelium isn't just a flat thing. It has a shape so that it can increase the surface area. So... Essentially. Okay. Like how your brain's all... So... Yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah. Wrinkly, yeah. The epithelium is also wrinkly. Ah, that makes a lot of sense. I was like, how do you fit 10 centimeters inside your head? (laughs) Yeah, you don't. (laughs) You fold it up a little. You make it wrinkly. So humans have how many receptors? Uh, Humans have... So this isn't receptors. Oh. We're talking about neurons. Sorry, how many neurons? neurons? Okay, how many neurons? Humans have 12 million olfactory neurons. 12 million. Rats have 15 million? Yes. Dogs, I'm going to say, have 20 million. Okay. Interesting guess. What about you, Beth? Do you have a guess here? I don't think... Because rats are really good smellers as well, aren't they? Yeah. Like, I've heard that rats and dogs... And they're really intelligent as well, rats are. Yeah. Um, Which has, I guess, nothing to do with this, but anyway. (laughs) So I'm going to go for, like conservatively above rats i'm gonna go for 16 million all right dogs we're gonna start with the size so they have 175 square centimeters what oh my goodness of olfactory epithelium yeah around that which is huge That's... wait and they have a very 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 structurally weird olfactory epithelium and it's very different from ours because they actually have a separate cavity for it than they have for breathing Whereas ours is kind of all mixed into one. What? Dogs have a separate cavity? Yes. I did not know that. That's so cool. I've had dogs for years and I never knew that. And in fact, so when they breathe in, a portion of this air, I can't exactly remember the percent, but like 40 or 50% maybe, is reserved for smelling. It goes to the smelling zone and the rest is for the respiration. So they have two separate tracks for respiration versus smelling, which is crazy that's insane so where is it located in human the olfact like the nasal cavity well um yeah right behind your nose (laughs) right behind your nose okay if you can picture if you go straight up your nostril that's where it is you'll find it (laughs) essentially your nasal cavity is literally right behind your nose above your mouth so like it's right it's sitting right above the roof of your mouth right um so where was i so we were talking about the size of it and how many olfactory neurons it has so dogs have a huge olfactory epithelium it's different shaped it has a lot of ins and outs and this is from my textbook the average dog whatever that is i don't know exactly has this 175 square centimeters of olfactory epithelium and one billion neurons one oh my god (laughs) that's a lot a lot of neurons and so bloodhounds which are bred for their smellability have approximately four billion Smellability? Yeah, their ability to smell. Oh, smell ability. Not smellability. <laughs> I thought that was one I word. Mean, depends how you want to say it. <laughs> okay, I've, I have a question back on the um, navel cavity. Yes. So, like, is it see- it's sealed off down at the bottom? Because then there's your mouth, right? Like, then there's the roof of your mouth. Yeah. So it, the air goes up through through your nose... And then what, down? Like, there's a gap at the top and it goes... No, no, your nostrils go straight into your nasal cavity. Okay. Think of it like your nostrils are to your nasal cavity as your lips are to your mouth. Your nasal cavity is like another mouth, pretty much. 
Okay. Thank you. You're welcome. Um, so yeah, so this is nasal cavity, nasal epithelium, number of neurons. So dogs have like way more, way, way more than humans. Billions. Billions of neurons. So this is somewhat what contributes to their better ability to perceive smell because if you have more neurons, then you can detect more stimulus, I guess. And if you have more space. So say you have one particle in the air, it's easier to detect this one particle if you have more neurons trying to detect it. So if there's a scent that's quite faint, dogs are going to do better because they simply have more neurons on the job to find and detect that smell. And presumably for the same reason, they can detect more different types of smells. Actually, no. <laughs> <laughs> that is what we're going to get into next. So okay, what is a smell? What do you think a smell is? Like... Is this like... If someone farts in the forest and no one's around to smell it, does it even have a smell? That's the expression, right? Well, it's like, what is a sound? This is what I'm getting at with that, is that, like, there's the thing, like, what is a sound? Is it the perception? So I'm going to go with the argument along the logic of if a tree falls in the forest and nobody's around to hear it, it doesn't make a sound. My answer to that is no, because a sound is a perception. So what is a smell? It is the perception of a chemical it is the reception of a chemical i would say you're wrong so i would say you're wrong on both counts or at least about the sound because i'm a physicist and therefore living things don't matter to me (laughs) (laughs) so if a tree falls in the forest it definitely does make a sound whether or not anybody picks it up is irrelevant yeah so i would Um, say i get where you're coming from alistair and you're both somewhat right To humans, of course, if you don't perceive something, then does it exist to you? Not really. No. But the thing that you would perceive is a very real thing, right? Like a sound wave exists. Light Mm -hmm. exists. And likewise, odorants exist. So I was going to guess that a smell was a particle... Like some kind of molecule, some kind of molecule suspended in air that is perceptible by your olfactory senses. So in that case, Alistair, take back what I said. You're not wrong on both counts. You're only wrong on one count. <laughs> we, can, we can debate sound in another episode. <laughs> we can debate it. But I think that's a great description of what an odorant is. But I wouldn't say that's what a smell is. Oh, okay. And so this is this is where it's going to get really interesting and you're just going to have to bear with me here because I have to explain some things before we kind of get to the answer of what is a smell. Okay. So we have these olfactory neurons waving hairs about in our nasal epithelium and they are detecting odorants, which I think I mentioned before, but these are just molecules in the air that they can detect. And so how do they do mm-hmm. this? They do this through the olfactory receptors, which we also talked about. And this is the you know, the lock and key model, the Rube Goldberg machine, these things can bind and detect the molecules in the air. So we have 12 million neurons sitting around and they have to detect a bunch of different molecules. There's like, honestly, nobody knows how many different molecules, organic molecules that can be detected chemically or need to be detected chemically. So how many different receptors do you think we have? Are the receptors non-specific, meaning like they will bind any molecule that has an aromatic group. I'm using Mm -hmm. some big chemistry words, but basically a benzene ring, uh, if it has that on the molecule, a lot of aromatic things that are in the air 
um, have benzene rings. Mm-hmm. So like, will it? Is it non-specific? It just binds anything that has an aromatic ring and then decides what that chemical is later in a different way. Mm-hmm. Or are they very specific? Because if they're very specific, then there's like kabajillion, trillions, quintillions. So, in humans, there are four hundred, around four hundred uh. <laughs> olfactory receptors. I was wrong. But what this means is that essentially we can bind, each receptor is fairly specific. So it can bind mm-hmm. a few different molecules with higher or lower affinity. And affinity is just how much of that molecule needs to be present for it to bind that receptor, essentially. Like if there's, if it, there's very little of the molecule present, but the receptor binds it, that would be a high affinity receptor. Because despite that molecule, not like, because of chemical equilibrium and these types of things, like there's an equilibrium between molecules bound to receptors and molecules just diffused. And if the equilibrium, if there's very low amounts of that molecule present, but they still bind to the receptor, then it must have really, really high affinity for that molecule. Likewise, they can have lower affinity, mean more of the molecule around. So there's 400 receptors, they can bind a few different molecules, but humans can are thought to be able to smell like millions of different smells, depending on where you look, thousands to millions of different smells. So how do we achieve this with only 400 receptors that are more or less specific? Is it, is, is it combinations of receptors? Yes. Yeah. That's what I was going to say too. So it's like, it's like if you have like a fancy led light strip. Yes. This is exactly the, um, (laughs) the analogy that, I think I would use for this. So essentially, because these receptors work in combination, then for a certain number of receptors, you can have a bunch of different combinations of how molecules bind to them. And this just increases the kind of repertoire of what we can detect. Okay. Yeah. So pretty much like you can think of it as, um, you can think of it as pretty much like receptors can bind multiple molecules, different molecules, but a single molecule can also bind to different receptors. So then say you have three receptors and vanilla binds one and two, but orange binds one and three. That's how we can distinguish between the sense of orange and vanilla, even though they both bind receptor one. And this is what's happening at the level of the nose and the olfactory epithelium. And so what's interesting, what's super, super interesting about olfactory neurons, however, is if you remember olfactory neuron or a neuron in general is just one processing unit. So if it binds a molecule to a high enough level, it sends a signal. There's no information about what that signal belonged to. So if a neuron expressed multiple different types of receptors, then this neuron isn't very useful because it could be binding vanilla, it could be binding orange, and it could be binding feces, and it would just send a message for all of them, and that wouldn't tell us anything. So each neuron only has a single receptor expressed on its cell surface, which is... So this is at the level of gene control. Genes are just what create proteins. They're part of the DNA. And at the level of gene control, somehow neurons in their DNA, which contains the code for these 400 different receptors, it picks one at random and only expresses that one. That is fascinating. Yeah. Like, I was thinking that, like, okay, so 400 different receptors on the surface of this one neuron, and then there's, you know, 12,000 neurons. 12 million, but yeah. 12 million, 12 million <laughs> neurons. But then, yeah, when you were explaining that, like, it causes the cascade and it's really just an on-off signal, that doesn't work. So each one at random picks 
a receptor and just so how do they decide like okay i'm gonna do receptor one you do receptor three like how do we not have people who just have all one receptor i guess because it's random yeah uh entropy i mean that is stuff that we don't actually know or understand like i said like so only very very recently have we started to even figure out how it even only turns on one gene like, we don't know how it selects one gene, but at least we've started to figure out how it turns on one gene. Because yeah. the other thing about these genes, which is very... So normally genes that are within the same family or do the same function are also in the same location on the genome. These are not. What? These are on different chromosomes. They're spread out all over the genome. Like, it makes no sense. They're everywhere. And the reason why say you're a cell that expresses keratin and keratin needs a binding protein that glues it all together, right? Usually how you turn on a gene is a stretch of DNA in front of that gene. So if you want to turn on keratin and you also want to turn on the glue, it's easy if they're close together because you have the stretch of DNA in front of the gene keratin and it turns on them both as a unit. This is local effects play a big role in kind of creating or transcribing proteins, creating proteins that both need to be around for each other to work. But so with olfactory receptors, since they're spread out all over, it's kind of like, how do you get one turned on and what is it doing? So essentially, and how do you make sure all the others get turned off at the same time? So essentially, it has to do with like the 3D conformation of DNA in that all of these different sequences of DNA across all of the separate chromosomes kind of cluster together in the 3D space of the nucleus. And this is what controls the creation of that one olfactory receptor and then helps suppress all of the others. They localize in 3D space instead of sort of just in the sequence, which is crazy and like very high level genetic biology that I don't even particularly understand very well. So in the way that DNA, because DNA only forms chromosomes when cells divide, right? Or do they sit around, they don't sit around in the nucleus as chromosomes. What you're picturing as a chromosome is only... Like the X shape. Yeah, that's, but a chromosome is not the X shape. A chromosome is that stretch of DNA because our DNA isn't, it's separated, right? So that piece of DNA is separate from the other pieces. So when we think about chromosomes we think about kind of DNA in those X shapes. When yeah. we talk about chromosomes or think about it, I've seen diagrams where like it's highlighted on a certain band of the X where yeah. the gene is expressed. But when DNA is floating around in the cell, normally through most of the cell's life, it is in the nucleus, just kind of floating around exactly. in a big strand. Kind of thing. It's just a big blob. And what you're saying is that kind of strand blob bundle, when it's floating around in these neurons, those sites, those gene sites for these receptors mm-hmm. are actually close together in that 3D bundled space. Yeah. So if you think of it, like it's like a ball of yarn. And it's like when you're first like, okay, say you have a cell divide, that's a ball of yarn. That's your chromosome. It's organized. You know how it's localized. It has a specific structure. But then you want to knit with it. And it's not very convenient to knit with a ball of yarn that comes straight from the store. So you like unwind it all so that you can knit with it. And then... When you're done knitting, you just kind of scoop it all back up together. So now you just have kind of a handful of yarn string. That's what DNA looks like in our nucleus most of the time. It's just these strands, these strands of DNA that are all, that we thought was kind of all just seemingly randomly localized. And some places it's more compact, some places it's more open. But in the nucleus, actually, it's turning out to be like we're discovering it's very highly organized despite just kind of floating around in open strands most of the time. And so one of the ways it's organized is the fact that all of these genes, which are on 
like crazy far apart, separate parts of the genome, separate chromosomes will come together in a localized space in the nucleus. And is that conserved across all the cells in our body? The sense that like it's floating around in this 3D structure and that's true in most cells? I know it, it sounds like it's pretty emerging research. No, no, but that's, like... no, that's true in most cells. That's not like that fact isn't only in dividing cells during division. Is it um, in those X-shaped chromosome images that you're so used to seeing? Otherwise, it's just the right. handful of yarn. But that handful of yarn is in the same kind of twists and turns and convolutions across all cells. No. Each cell type needs it in different conformations so that they can also get the gene activity that they need. So if you have an immune cell, it's going to have all of the immune cell protein DNAs, like antibodies. All of the DNA that encodes antibodies is going to be very open and accessible to the machinery that will make the protein from that gene. Whereas in a neuron... That DNA is just going to be like super compact and inaccessible because we don't want a neuron making an antibody. Right, right. This is amazing. <laughs> yeah. Oh my goodness, this is so cool. This is so much information I never knew. Yeah. So this is kind of the crazy way that olfactory receptors are encoded in neurons and it has to do with 3D space within the nucleus where the DNA interacts. So the olfactory okay. receptor genes are just sitting kind of randomly spread out, dispersed along the genome, which is already kind of crazy for a set of um, genes that are all related. Normally related genes are close together. In this case, they're just randomly spread out, but they cover these hugely, hugely long distances to come together into like a single location within the nucleus. So despite the fact that they're super far apart on these strings, they fold up and like create these loops that all come together, come close together so that you can turn off 399 of them in the same step that you turn on one. Wow. Essentially. So pretty crazy. Whoa. Yeah. I learned, I learned something. Yeah. Hey, that's so cool. Yeah. So this is how humans can distinguish between, well, this is part of how humans can distinguish between thousands of cells. And it's because of this combinatorial action of the receptors and the fact that each neuron only has a single receptor. So each neuron is practically it's a single molecule or like a few molecules that are all very similar. And that's what it encodes at the level of your nasal epithelium. And I keep saying at the level of your nasal epithelium, because you have to remember, we're not even at the brain yet. True. We're still in the nose. So just you wait, just you wait. And so (laughs) I just wanted to throw out a couple of cool facts out there, which I found in the textbook as well, which is that for humans and you think like, I don't know about you guys. I feel like I have a pretty bad sense of smell. Like, If I sniff in at any given moment, I probably can't smell that much or smell anything. I mean, I can smell my coffee, but coffee is a very strong odorant. I don't know if you guys can smell anything. I just sniffed my empty coffee mug. Still smells like coffee. Yeah, (laughs) smells like coffee. There you go. I've got stuffed up sinuses, so I can't smell anything at all. Ah, yes. So humans, though, on an average day, you know, as a human can detect 10 molecules per billion for ozone. So you know that smell that's in the air after lightning or after a rainstorm? Yeah. Mm. That's ozone. And if there are 10 molecules per billion of air, we can detect it. Really? Which is kind of crazy to think about because we're like, oh, we're not very good at smelling. Well, actually, we're not half bad. Wow. We're not half yeah. bad. And so... That's ozone? Yeah, the lightning storm smell. That like... Not necessarily the one after rain, but the one after lightning, for sure. I don't know about lightning storms, but like... It's kind of, it's not a very nice smell if you have it in higher concentrations, according to this. I also can't like really picture what the smell is. So I have another example of a smell. So this is a molecule called D-limonene or limonene. 
And it's essentially, mm -hmm. it's a citrus molecule. It's what creates citrus smell. So think of a lemon, think of an orange, mm -hmm. they have, think of a lime. They all have that kind of citrusy smell in common. That's this molecule, this D-limonene. And we can detect that at 15 molecules per billion. Wow. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So some molecules we're really, really good at detecting. That's a really good detection limit. Like, yeah. to put this in my perspective, we work with inductively coupled plasma mass spectrometry, which I'll talk about in another episode probably. <laughs> but like, we're looking at that level, like parts per billion level of toxic elements. But like, yeah. 10 ppb is... And you have these huge, huge machines to do it. Yeah. That are super expensive. I mean, humans <laughs> are also expensive. But yeah, like... but we just have a highly efficient nose. And so dogs... Dogs can detect smells in the sense, like in the molecules per trillion. Oh my goodness! Wow. That's how good they are at sensing, and that's why they can. That's why they can smell things like cancer because cancerous smells produce specific, different odorants than other cells. And we don't know what those are necessarily. We don't know exactly what it is they're detecting. It might be different in different cases. So, is there was a case of a dog that detected a melanoma spot, and it kept detecting this spot even though doctors had declared it cancer-free. And so they eventually removed the spot because the dog just kept detecting it and found that there was only like a few cells in there that were cancerous. Wow. That's amazing. And so dogs can do this because they have incredible smell acuity. Like they can just, and this has to do, like I said, with the fact that they have a billion or more neurons dedicated to this job. And they also have around a thousand olfactory receptors as opposed to 400. So they can detect a wider variety of different molecules as well. But this is like, in the terms of what is actually contributing to their really, really good sense of smell, it probably has more to do with just the simple, like the size of the, like how much space they have dedicated to smelling. So like their whole smell system, their olfactory epithelium is huge. They have a different set of air that's specifically for smelling. And then also the number of neurons there. And then also they have just a larger smell area in their brain. So the brain, which processes the smell later and tells them what it is, they have a larger area for that. So there's many reasons why dogs are better at smelling than us, but humans are also okay at smelling yeah some things some things were not so ethanol for instance you know the smell of alcohol oh i know it well <laughs> <laughs> you might have heard of it um we can actually only detect that at around 2000 molecules per billion so we're not very good at smelling ethanol which is funny that's strange yeah and so then the other thing is that like since these receptors can bind similar but different molecules like a few different molecules and they have different levels at which they bind these molecules, you might have a molecule only binding a receptor if there's a lot of it present, right? If you have a high concentration of the molecule, then it might bind that receptor, but in other cases it won't. Right. So I came up with this odorant in my searching called scatol. What does scatol make you think of? It sounds like scat, like poop. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You're right, because it is the main odorant of poop. Oh. Feces. It <laughs> is, contributes to feces smell, <laughs> scatol. Um, but I'm you want to so know impressed by your science anymore. <laughs> okay, at high concentrations it smells like poop. Guess what it smells like at low concentrations? Oh, um chocolate. Oh, I'm going to say leather. It smells floral and it's produced by orange blossoms. No way. How wholesome is that? Really? Yeah, so this molecule that smells like literal poop at high concentrations is also in essential oils and perfumes. Oh my gosh. And orange blossoms because it smells really good at low concentrations like we can detect it at low concentrations and it smells floral flowery like that's crazy you might just want to spray like a really tiny bit on yourself if you're trying to attract a mate because then you're going to smell flowery thanks for the advice i need it in this dating market 
spray a lot, you might smell really bad. <laughs> now I'm going to summarize. We have 400 receptors. They can detect a few different molecules, 12 million neurons spread out throughout our olfactory epithelium. And they have, so like you can imagine that if we have 12 million neurons and only 400 receptors, there's a ton of neurons that all have the same receptor. Mm-hmm. These are just dispersed throughout the epithelium. And this makes sense because if you breathe in, air is kind of going to circle through it randomly in your nasal cavity. So you don't want all of your strawberry sensing neurons to be on one side of your nose because then you have to make like the air would have to go to that side to detect it. Instead, it's just spread out randomly. Neurons are just spread out through the epithelium. They express a random receptor and whether like they don't typically express the same receptor as their neighbors. Quite random organization. There's like some rules to it, but I didn't really go into that in my reading zones of like types of smells, whatever types of receptors. But mainly you can picture that if a neuron has one receptor, none of the neurons around it have that same receptor if they're very spread out. So my next part I titled, what happens after the vanilla signal is sent? (laughs) Because we both sent it, but then also our neuron is gonna send it elsewhere. Sienna, you are awful. You are a terrible human being. (laughs) I am. (laughs) I love that. That was so good. So I'm just going to use the vanilla as an example because vanilla has a very specific aromatic compound associated with it called vanillin. We can detect it. We know what vanilla smells like. So you have a neuron sitting around there hanging out with a receptor for vanillin. It detects it and it, this is the input. And so then it sends an output. So where does it send it? So right above your nasal epithelium. So at the top of your nasal cavity is a bone and this is called the cribiform plate and so it's just this thin sheet of bone right there but this bone is very very porous because it has to allow the axons of all of these olfactory neurons to go through it so it has a bunch of holes and they just project through this bone and then right above this bone is your brain what and so you know you know about egyptians (gasps) right yeah that's what i was gonna say the ancient egyptians used to like pull people's brains out through their nose. And this is exactly why. There's only kind of this thin, porous bone sitting between your nose and then the cavity that contains your brain. So it's right there. Your brain is much closer than you think. (laughs) (laughs) Wait, so these things don't like divide and change like normal cells? No, neurons typically don't divide. In fact, there's only like neurons, once they're born, that's it. That's the neuron you have. Neurons don't renew or anything. That's Neurons last your whole life, pretty much. Except for one type of special neuron that sits in your nose called the olfactory neuron. <laughs> what? So these neurons that I'm talking about are also the only neuron in humans. And I say only, there's some evidence that shows that there's some neurons in our hippocampus of our brain, so the memory center, that also are newly born throughout your life. So we always talk about our neuron. If it's newly born, that means it was just divided from a stem cell and it creates a newborn neuron. And most of this, pretty much 99% of this happens before we're born. So all of your neurons are born before Mm -hmm. you are born, (laughs) pretty much. And and then after that, there's no more new birth of neurons, except pretty much in your nose. And olfactory neurons have a lifespan of about 30 to 60 days. That's so short. And they are just- Why? They're constantly renewing from stem cells within your nasal epithelium. But if you have anything that like affects your olfactory neuron, like if it gets a virus or something, it doesn't really matter because you still have the stem cell. It's just going to replace it in 30 to 60 days anyways. So, but if you think about it, then every 30 to 60 days, 
when a new neuron is born, it has to send an axon that up that one to two millimeters or however far it is to get from its location in your nasal epithelium to your brain. Okay, so we talked about the cribriform plate. It's sitting there. So right above it, like I said, is the brain. And so when you think of the brain, you think of this massively folded structure. That folded structure is the cortex. It's actually <laughs> only a thin sheet of the brain. I think it's like four to six centimeters in humans or something like that, this thin sheet lining all of the folds of our brain. And then underneath it, you have other brain structures. And this is like general brain anatomy. And you can have things like the thalamus or the hypothalamus, which I'm sure you guys have heard of. And these are just like very specialized and localized structures of brain that have specific neurons that are associated with specific jobs. Okay. And so often these are referred to either as lobes or bulbs of the brain, things like that. And I want to tell you about this just because the brain that you have right above your cribriform plate is your olfactory bulb. So it's the specialized piece of brain that does look just like kind of like a bulb, like a light bulb or something. It's just sticking out into there. And you have two of them, two olfactory bulbs, one on either side, presumably one for each nostril. But like, since it's all in the same nasal cavity, it doesn't matter to us. Dogs can actually determine which nose or nostril a smell came from, which is why they have such good directional navigation from smells. And this has to do with how they breathe air in and out. Some dogs. <laughs> yeah, some dogs, true. <laughs> so we have these two olfactory bulbs. They're the exact same, so we're just going to refer to it as the olfactory bulb sitting above our bone. So in this bulb, this is where all of the axons go to terminate. So like I said, axons have to terminate somewhere. And at the end of the axon, it, that's where the output goes and becomes input for the next neuron in the chain. Does that make sense? We're still at the first yeah. neuron, right? So this is like reception to... So yeah, this is the axon of the first neuron. Okay. So mm -hmm. at one end of this neuron, it has little hairs with receptors. Right. At the other end, it's stuck in the brain, and it sends an electrical signal from this end. Okay. So what's really super, super cool about this, and is unlike anywhere, I think unlike anywhere else in the brain, it's a very specific, special component of olfactory systems, and you can find it in pretty much all mammals with an olfactory system. Anything that can smell has this organization to the olfactory bulb. Where, like I said, there's like, we have 12 million neurons, only 400 receptors. So a bunch of neurons all have the same receptor and they're spread out all over the epithelium. But all of their axons go to the exact same discrete place in the bulb. No. Yes. What? <laughs> they all go to the same place. And this is called a glomerulus. And essentially it's this discrete ball of all of the nerve terminals that represent all of the neurons with the same receptor. Oh, that's clever. So this is where the LED light analogy starts getting really good because you have these literal like circular ball structures in your olfactory lobe that only have outputs from the same type of neuron. So the neuron that can detect vanilla, even though it's everywhere in your epithelium, all goes and forms this one ball that is the vanilla ball. That's so clever. How do they not get tied in knots? <laughs> like, have you ever tried to, like, plug in, like, your computer and, like, your phone and, like, you've got, like, something else plugged in? Yeah. And all the cords just get all bundled together and they're all yeah. going, like... Yeah, it's, yeah. That's so insane. Developmentally, this is an insane process. And people study it because we don't understand at all how axons get to the place they're supposed to go. Like, if you think, this is not even... They don't have to travel very far. Axons that have to travel a meter... How do they know where they're supposed to end up? 
And essentially, they just follow all of these chemical cues that tell them to turn or not. Chemosensing, we all heard of it this episode. But with these ones, not only do they follow chemical cues that tell them generally where they're supposed to end up, but then they find all of their friends. And this is through, like, we're not exactly sure how this works. We think it has to do with that they express very specific other proteins, very specific proteins on the surface of their cells that aren't olfactory receptors, but that pretty much tell an axon when it meets another that you're the same as me. So we're going to go to the same place. But we don't understand it very well. There's actually a lab near my lab that studies this in development because it's very important in understanding how the brain wires up in general is how do neurons know who they want to be with, know where they want to go, know who to connect with, know who to not connect with. And this all happens before you're born. Yeah, so this structure is all set up before you're born. But you have to think that if you have a newborn vanilla neuron every 30 to 60 days, this neuron is finding the vanilla ball and going to it still. Oh, of course. Yeah. Oh my, that's insane. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. How do humans work? Like, how does any animal end up actually working? Exactly. <laughs> it's too complicated, right? It's crazy how well organized it is and how it just achieves yeah. this through, like, small molecule interactions. Take that, yeah. Occam's razor. <laughs> so, you have what are called glomerulus. The plural is glomeruli. So your olfactory bulb, which is a piece of the brain, has all of these different glomeruli, which represent all of these different molecules Wow. that can be detected, all of their different receptors. And so you have about a thousand or so glomeruli in humans, which is obviously more than the number of receptors. So you have like two to three glomeruli per type of neuron. I don't know how they decide which one to go to, but essentially you might have two or three vanilla glomeruli, mm -hmm. not just one, but it represents the same thing. And so then these glomeruli, obviously this is just the axon endings here that create this structure. And so that's an output. So it, the output needs to go somewhere, right? And so you have another neuron, one single neuron that sits at the edge of a single glomerulus and sends its dendrites out into the glomerulus. So essentially, if this is called a mitral cell, it's a very specific type of neuron. And so for each glomerulus, you pretty much have one mitral cell and it has its inputs right ready at that glomerulus. So if you smell vanilla and the vanilla glomerulus lights up, has activity, sends an electrical signal, then this mitral cell will pick that up as an input and send a signal that we have vanilla, guys. Guys, we have vanilla. <laughs> Checks out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so that's how kind of smell is encoded at that level. But what we actually think of as smell, and so then this mitral cell has an axon as well, and the axons get sent to various different structures in the brain. And I'm not going to go into as much detail about this, but one of those is the pyriform cortex it's this like evolutionarily older cortex so it's not quite as advanced as like our frontal lobe if you think of our frontal lobe people think of that as like where we process all reason and thought and stuff and this is a very complex piece of cortex essentially and it is supposedly for higher order thinking that's what we presume reasoning logic um making decisions that type of thing we also have a piece of cortex that's dedicated to just processing smells and it's slightly older and slightly less complicated than the frontal cortex, which is dedicated to processing thoughts. <laughs> so essentially then this mitral cell will send an axon out, it'll reach neurons in this cortex. At this level, it's, it's not as organized by scent anymore. So we're not really sure how the mitral cells project to the cortex, where they go, where they end up doing. But we do know that what encodes a smell to us, so say we smell an orange, that smell of orange is actually the pattern of glomeruli that light up, that have activity. 
So it's not like we're smelling one, like it's not one glomeruli, it's not one circuit, it's kind of all of these different glomeruli detecting all of these different molecules and these mitral cells sending this information to the brain and the brain processing all of these molecules and saying, this is the smell that I recognize is associated with this flavor, with this object, with this orange. So now I'm going to tell my human that this is orange and we have an orange. Wow. Yeah. This, this is now like very connected with the artificial neural networks that I've been studying. Yeah, you can see why. <laughs> so this is good. Yeah, because it's like the, the point of artificial neural networks is that they take in a variety of different inputs. And so like you can have 10 variables, you can have millions of variables and like each one has a certain number associated with it. You do like a bunch of calculations, then you do another load of calculations, you do another load of calculations, and at the end, you have one number, or one hopes that you have one number that is associated with one outcome. Yeah. And if you have this one particular number, then you're like, okay, good, it's an orange. If you have one, di- if you have a different number, then you're like, fantastic, it's a lemon. Mm-hmm. And if you have another number, then you're like, what on earth is this? I've never smelled this before in my life. Exactly. Yeah, so that's exactly how the brain works. Obviously, there's a reason why we started studying neural networks yeah. and in artificial intelligence, and it's because the brain is ridiculously cool in a computing sense. It's really good at its job. And the olfactory system isn't even necessarily the coolest place where brain computing occurs. Like, the visual system is wild. If you go wild. into that, my, it's a wild west. my brain might <laughs> explode. <laughs> like, yeah. The brain trying to understand itself is a very difficult job. (laughs) You think about it. Uh, But anyway, so you have these mitral cells. They send all of these different combinations of molecular signals that they detected from the glomeruli to the cortex, to other areas of the brain as well. And then we get kind of an output in our thoughts, which is this smells like an orange or this smells not like an orange, maybe. And the interesting thing about this is you would think like the smell of orange would be encoded somewhere in the cortex, right? Because we've been able to encode smells in other places. Like we know that the smell of vanilla, the molecule is encoded in a specific type of neuron and this is encoded in a specific lamellae in a specific spot. But the smell of orange is not encoded in a specific spot of the cortex. Like you can't look in the cortex and poke a spot and be like, oh, that's orange. We don't know. You can, however, if you like do brain imaging of people when they're smelling different things, different areas of the brain light up depending on what's known as the valence of the substance. So this essentially tells you whether or not something smells good or bad. So if you have, if you smell an orange and you think it smells nice, you like the smell of orange, a different part of your brain is going to light up than if you smell something stinky and you're like, ugh, I don't like that. That's not aesthetically pleasing. That's encoded. So those two things are separated in area in the brain. But the orange and something stinky is not necessarily going to be separated by area. We don't it's only because they have different aesthetic properties that they're separated. Interesting. Yeah. <laughs> so like bad smells are put in a certain bin in the brain by the brain mm-hmm. and good smells are put in another bin in the brain by the brain. Yeah. But you can't reach in and be like, oh, here's where I store the oranges in this bin. It's just kind of like all in one area. No. Wow. Exactly. But if you think about it evolutionarily, that's super helpful because that's what we want out of a smell is we want to know is this something I want to pursue or is this something I want to run away from Mm -hmm. right like if you smell something bad you don't want to eat it 
you might, if it's in the air, you might not want to be in that air because it might be toxic to you. So you want to leave that area. So you should, what you really want to get out of the smell is, is the aesthetic value of it to yourself. Not really so much the type of smell it is, although since humans are really complex creatures and like knowing what types of smells things are, obviously when you think academically about smells and you're like, oh, I want to know if this smells like orange or vanilla or something, obviously we'll want to know that. But in terms of evolutionarily speaking in the brain, we really wanted to know it for purposes of, is this going to give me calories and can I eat this versus should I not? Yeah. Is And is this why sometimes you have uh, visceral responses to smells? So I was looking that up because I wondered that myself and that I couldn't find out. I'm not sure if we know why we have visceral responses and whether, because there's a lot of responses like, like salivating when you smell something good happens really fast and you don't think about yeah. that. And I'm not sure if this is just processed on a different circuit. So like, obviously these axons go to the cortex, but they can also go to other regions of the brain mm -hmm. that are more responsible for processing things like salivation or like relaxation or tension of the guts, that type of thing. So it might just be that there's another circuit that goes directly there and tells you whether or not to salivate so that you don't have to think about it. Interesting. Yeah. So that's kind of where I ended. So we made it all the way from the nose to the brain. That's where I ended with kind of my um, technical summary. So I wanted to ask if you have any questions. And then I also have some fun special facts. And I also have a quiz. Honestly, that oh, was kidding. amazing. My mind is so <laughs> blown right now. Hit me with these facts in the quiz. Yeah. I'm ready. Okay. So another thing that you guys, I don't know if you thought of this at any point, but it might be interesting, is the idea that smells can be associated with memories. Yeah, so, that's yeah. true. When you go into a certain location for after having been a long time away, or you catch a whiff of something, and like baby powder, I think of as being like kind of one of the strongest smells of my childhood, that like when I smell baby powder, I'm taken back to like having a bath as a kid and having baby powder put on me. And it's very yeah. strange, but very like, it's a very salient memory. And it's all because of the smell of baby powder, right? Well, mm. this is because we recently found out, I think on paper in 2017 or 2018, that there's a direct mm. connection between the memory processing part of our brain and this little set of cells located near our olfactory bulbs. So essentially they process the information in the olfactory bulb and send it pretty much directly to our memory center and vice versa. Interesting. And so when you smell something, it can immediately trigger sort of this memory reaction because it's connected to that part of your brain almost directly. Yeah. Wow. Which is unlike unlike vision or other senses where they don't have these direct connections to memory. They have kind of more roundabout connections after being sent other places in the brain and post-processed and everything. Yeah. And then my other thing that I was going to maybe bring up if we had time which I also thought you guys might ask questions about, but you didn't. Sorry. Was detection of pheromones. Ah. Ooh, okay. Uh huh. So, I don't know if you guys have heard about pheromones, what they are. Essentially, they're odorants, molecules floating around in the air that are associated with sort of sexual mating procedures. So, it's how like a mouse sniffs out a potential partner and decides whether or not they like them. And. There's all sorts of arguments in, in society about humans and pheromones, right? And we've all mm -hmm. seen the studies and people being like, oh, you know, this person, given a pile of male t-shirts, they liked the smell best of the one that belonged to the person they were actually dating. Like, this is evidence that we might choose people based on their smell, blah, blah, blah. And that might have to do with pheromones. But there's no actual good evidence that pheromones are relevant to humans at all. 
So mm -hmm. pheromones are not processed by your main sensory, like your main sense of smell, this nasal cavity and olfactory epithelium. There's actually in cats, mice, dogs, there's actually a separate region that has a separate epithelium that is responsible for detecting pheromones. And humans don't have that Interesting. at all. Oh. Yeah. And then also the other thing is that those neurons, it's called the um, accessory olfactory system because it's not the main olfactory system, it's the accessory one, and it detects pheromones. And essentially you have what's called the vomeral nasal organ in mice and rats, and this is a separate organ that sits kind of in a different place in the respiratory pathway, a bit further back. And it also sends axons to a separate part of the brain called the accessory olfactory bulb. So it's completely processed on a different pathway in other mammals. And we right. just don't have that. And I say we don't have that as adults, but actually when we're developing embryos, there is sort of a transient structure that resembles this vomeral nasal organ and accessory system, but it completely disappears through development. So we don't have it when we're born. Interesting. So whether or not pheromones are relevant, it's really hard to tell because we might have the structure while it's developing, but then it disappears. We don't know where it goes. We don't know if it's functional or not. We don't know if we express receptors that could detect pheromones or not. We don't know. Yeah. But probably not. It's probably not relevant to humans. I imagine that, like, if we could smell pheromones, we would know. It's not like mice behave as though they don't know they can smell pheromones. They yeah. definitely have behaviors associated with smelling pheromones. And we're just like, oh, we gravitate towards people that we like the pheromones of. I think it would be much yeah. more deliberate than that. Like, we're yeah. aware of everything we smell. We should, yeah. If we could smell pheromones, we would probably be aware of it, too. Yeah. And I feel like human attraction is so complicated anyway. Mm -hmm. Like... I mean, who here has watched Love is Blind? <laughs> <laughs> Clearly no pheromones involved in that experiment. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> okay, so I have a quiz in case our listeners also want to follow along and do the quiz and test their knowledge and what they learned and whatnot. So, okay, question one. And these are like long answer questions, but you can try and keep it summarized or short or however you feel you want to answer. Okay. So, how does an olfactory neuron detect an odorant? Go, Alistair. No, Beth goes, she got first. Okay, okay, um, so the odorant enters your nose when you breathe in, and it gets, like, stuck to the epithelium, right? It gets stuck to, like, a mucus layer. Yeah. Uh, which sits on the epithelium, am I yeah. right? Yep. And you get your, and your neuron has little receptors at the end, like little hairs. Yeah. Which go out into the mucus layer and when it detects the molecule there's some like chemical electrochemical change that means that the neuron is like oh something's changed I've seen this molecule I'm now gonna send a signal up towards the brain in that general direction yeah saying that I've detected this molecule yeah Alistair anything to add uh no, that sounded like a good answer. Yeah. Okay. So my second smell, smell, my second question, um, which I will ask you, Alistair, since Beth answered the first one, is how does a smell get coded in the brain? Okay. So a smell gets coded in the brain because all of the axons from these olfactory receptor neurons, um, somehow, even though they're spread out all over the nasal cavity, the nasal epithelium, um, come together into one area of the brain on the olfactory bulb um, which is called a glomerulus and then that is picked up by a, another neuron that I can't remember the name of the mycelium mitral 
but the mitral neuron. Um, so the glomerulus is the area of all of these axons, and the mitrum picks it up. Uh, so it gets coded into the brain. Anything to add, Beth? No, I thought that was a good explanation. Very good, cellular level. I was going to say the coding part more happens at the level of the different patterns of activation of these different uh, glomeruli, okay. but yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. And, okay, last question. Both of you can answer it. Name something special about the olfactory system that you learned today. Ooh, that instead that in olfactory neurons, like, okay, so in general, DNA is a long strand that's like bundled up semi-randomly or like in a way that we don't really understand and the parts of the dna that are relevant to that cell's function are like on the outside easily accessible to things that want to do things with that dna in the olfactory um, neurons instead of being close together on the dna strand the parts relevant to the to the smelling of whatever you're smelling are spread out along the DNA, but when it's all crumpled up together in a 3D ball, they are close in 3D space. So that's really interesting because it's different from other neurons. Yeah, great one. Mine, really interesting thing, is that we have 12 million... Um, approximately 12 million olfactory neurons um, but only 400 receptors and so it's this interesting combination of receptors that gives us what we perceive as different smells but only or each olfactory neuron has only one type of receptor on its cell surface or on its dendrite and that's super unique in the body that like one cell is producing one type of receptor yeah Pretty cool stuff. Yeah. Okay. That's so cool. Yeah. That's awesome. Yeah, I hope. What a yeah. great episode. Mm-hmm. I'm like, this was this was super interesting, and I. This is a great episode. Yeah. I'm glad you guys found it interesting. I was very excited to share all of this with you because, despite the fact that I don't study the olfactory system, every time I have learned about it in courses, I'm always just blown away by the weirdness of how specifically it is organized and especially compared to other parts of the brain and other systems. Although like typically our sensory systems are pretty well organized, but like the olfactory system, it just like goes above and beyond. And also the fact, my favorite fact about olfaction in general is that humans can discern between like thousands to potentially millions of different smells. And I sit here thinking like, I don't even know if I could name a hundred smells, but I have this ability apparently. According to science. So, pretty crazy. According to science. According to science, I can smell thousands of different things. What a great episode. Um, What's that textbook, by the way? You referenced it. So, I used two textbooks, actually, for the studying of this one. So, this one is Neuroscience, 5th edition, by Dale Uh Purves, George J. Augustine, etc. More names there. But I also have the uh, tome, the Neuroscience tome, uh, Principles of Neuroscience, fifth edition and this is by eric kandel who is a nobel prize winner in neuroscience Mm, and james schwartz thomas jessel these are all like very famous neuroscientists but essentially it's just like the textbook that we use do you want to send us out um thank you for listening to our podcast today on the topic of olfaction as they always say the nose knows this podcast not yet a doctor is brought to you by sienna beth and alistair thanks for listening